What a great time that was to just kind of reflect on the Word of God and how it encourages us and how we can encourage others with it. I was thinking as we were sharing, there's nothing more encouraging in the world than to be in a difficult situation and go to the only place where there's objective reality spoken right to you and you know it's right. Nothing more comforting than that. We look for answers in all kinds of places sometimes and there's no real help. It's all subjective. It's all opinions and... Yet we open the Word of God, and He has absolute truth, which is solid to stand on. What a great thing. Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we just begin our time tonight? Father, once again, we just want to thank You for Your Word. It is life. It is light to the path. It is help for the weary soul. It is nourishing meat for our spiritual lives. It is everything we need for life and godliness. It is a reflection of who you are and your very character and nature. We see your faithfulness on every page. We see the wonder and majesty of your beauty, and we just revel in praising you. And so we thank you for tonight that we can be here that we can open your word together, that we can worship you through the study of your word. Lord, be honored through it and change our lives because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Last Lord's Day, we began a uh, really to gain an understanding, if you will, from the life of the Apostle Paul as to how he was going to go about defending himself, really, or defending the veracity of the true gospel with those who were trying to undermine it with a perverted gospel. Happens often. People have debates and challenges about what will save, and we see that even in evangelicalism today, and it was no different during the first century. The Apostle Paul was going around and preaching Starting churches, others would come in and challenge that. And so I want to return to that subject tonight as we focus our attention on the first 10 verses of chapter 2. As I've been going through this book, and particularly the end of chapter 1 and now the beginning of chapter 2, it's hard to, to just hone in on one particular verse because Paul in some ways is giving a narrative outflow of what took place to the Galatians so that he can prove to them the veracity of the gospel and answer the challenges that they're hearing in their ears from those who had come into the church. And I trust as we begin this passage tonight that we'll understand the heart of the Apostle Paul even in a greater way than we have in the past. Follow along as I read chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. Apostle Paul says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain." But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. We didn't yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked in for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked with me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager 
to do. Now, like I said at the beginning, the Apostle Paul is laying out the groundwork for destroying the argument that in order to be a Christian, you must believe upon Jesus, but also you must do other things. Paul is laying the groundwork in order to destroy that argument, and to, to, to completely upend its roots within the churches in Galatia. And this has been the argument raised up against Paul all along by means of some who had come into the church, as Paul said, or into the area of Galatia, trying to discredit what he had been preaching. They are attempting, in essence, to take liberty in Christ, and they are trying to take it hostage by thoroughly removing freedom that we have through Jesus Christ. Back during the time several years ago in our own country when the civil rights movement was hot and heavy uh, back in the 60s, at the forefront of everybody's mind was racial interaction. During the famous speech that we've all heard of, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Of course, he was specifically speaking of being no longer under the bondage of human slavery. And if anything is true from all that we know of the history of ethnic hatred that has played itself out in the country, some have known and experienced that in their own life, it's a whole lot easier to proclaim liberty than it is to possess liberty. A whole lot easier to pronounce that, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last, than to actually have liberty. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used those words as a rallying cry for physical liberty. Physical liberty. But those famous words that he spoke originally had nothing to do with that kind of liberty. Those words had nothing to do with liberty in your life from oppression. Those words primarily had meaning, and they were written as part of a song that was about the freedom from sin through Jesus Christ. It was actually, ironically, a Negro spiritual that he was quoting. In other words, they were words of celebration that celebrated that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all who believe in Him are free at last. Free at last. Free from what? Free from trying to earn their own salvation by means of effort. Free at last. Free from the bondage of sin's curse. Free from from ever being enslaved by death, free from ever being enslaved once again by personal effort to gain some kind of standard before God. It was speaking about freedom in Christ. It's that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. It's that what he is concerned about as he writes to these believers in Galatia because they had believed the gospel that he had preached to them. They had embraced what Paul had said to them. They had said they believed it. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of all who would ever believe upon Him. They had embraced the true gospel. And through the gospel, they had actually been freed. They were no longer spiritual slaves to sin. But now... They were free in Christ. But some others had come in, and they began to preach another gospel. And as Paul said, really, it's not another gospel that will save. It's only a damning gospel, so it's not another gospel. Gospel is good news. This is not good news. But these new believers were being tempted to follow along with what they were saying And as a result, they were in danger of becoming enslaved again. 
This was not new for the Apostle Paul. He had seen this before. This was constantly what was plaguing his ministry. The Judaizers had secretly entered into the church. You notice he says that here in verse 4. It was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. In order to bring us into bondage, that's what they wanted. Paul says they came to spy out our liberty. In other words, theirs was a mission of subversive espionage. That's what they were. They weren't part of us. They didn't want to have any part with us. They just wanted to come in and spy out what was ours. They were conducting black ops. They were undercover. These were clandestine operations acting as undercover agents, if you will, in order to see what the so-called Gentile believers were up to. So instead of being just spies, they were actually spiritual terrorists. They were more than just spies. They were coming in as terrorists seeking to take hostages. They wanted the Gentiles to follow Jewish ritual if they were going to actually be saved. In fact, Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says they were saying, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they made a spiritual judgment. They were judging other spiritual condition based upon their own belief that law-keeping was essential. Therefore, they were saying Paul's gospel is the false gospel. So you can see why Paul is extremely concerned about this. And rightly so. He ought to be concerned about this because here's the kicker. If we get the gospel wrong, this is what Paul's intent is. Listen, Galatians, if you get the gospel wrong, then people can be convinced they're saved when they're actually on the road to hell. We get the gospel wrong, people who believe that kind of wrong gospel that doesn't save will go about thinking they are saved when they're not saved at all. And so Paul is going to defend the truthfulness of the gospel he preaches in order to prove that his gospel is the only one that saves. That's why Paul is so adamant. That's why Paul said back in chapter 1 as we looked at it some weeks ago, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting, not the gospel, not the good news that I preach to you, because with the gospel and in the gospel is the reality of the character of God. I'm, so, I'm surprised you're so quickly deserting Him who called you. So Paul now is defending the gospel that he preaches. And you say, how's he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by pointing out several evidences as to why it's true. We began to see these last Lord's Day, and I'll just review the first two for us, and then we'll get into the second ones tonight. You remember the first one was the source of the gospel. This is the first proof of the gospel, the source of the gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he said, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. In saying what Paul is saying there in verse 11 and 12, he is denying three commonly held in those times sources for which the false gospel of the Judaizers claim they got their information. He says it was not according to man, it was not received from man, nor was it taught by man to Paul. It was not according to man. That is to simply say it's not invented by man. God is the source. In fact, Paul even says that it was through the revelation through Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel pointed to Christ, pointed to the grace shown to man by God. We said this last time, no man-made gospel would ever dream up the way God has decided to save. Why? Because no man gets credit in that gospel. No man would devise a gospel which in which he would get no credit. If we get circumcised, if we carry out some religious ritual, then we get credit. It's an outward work, but that's not the gospel of Paul. Paul says it's not a gospel of man. And then secondly, he says, I didn't receive it from man. 
I didn't receive it from man. Circumcision was part of the ceremonial law. It was part of the law of Moses. But John 1.17, remember what John said? This is amazing. An amazing thing. We don't link this together sometimes when we think about it, but here's what John said. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is not according to man. This is not by men. I didn't receive it from man. This isn't through the law. There's no human agency that's involved in generating the gospel that I preach. It wasn't passed down to me as some Jewish tradition that we got through the law as God gave it to Moses. It wasn't the word of so-and-so, this famous teacher, whoever you want to quote. I didn't receive it that way. Paul says it came exclusively from God. God was the source. God was the source. He says, thirdly, he was, I wasn't taught it by men. In other words, I didn't sit in some theological school and learn the doctrines that I'm teaching to you. I didn't learn it that way. Paul received it in a unique way, only unique to Paul himself. Paul was taught it directly from Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. So he says in verse 12, I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So who was the one who was the source of the gospel? It was the Lord himself. The Lord himself. Paul heard and learned the gospel that he preached by direct revelation from the risen Lord. So the source of the true gospel is Paul's first proof, but then he gives that second one. We spent quite some time on this last week. His second proof was his own conversion. His own conversion. He said, For you have heard of my former manner of life, verse 13, chapter 1, in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it, in fact, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, but probably the Strongest key word for the Apostle Paul here in this entire text, because that's the change. That's what happens when God invades your life. There's a change that takes place. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. Paul says, listen, when God changed my life, when God opened my eyes on the road to Damascus, it wasn't flesh and blood I sought after. I just went and did what he said I should do. We need to hear Paul when he's saying this because he is defending the truthfulness of the gospel. As I said last week, he's defending it by describing the profound change that the gospel had in his life. This is who I was. Maybe you've heard about me in the past. This is who I was. My changed life is proof of the true gospel. Nobody else was around. Nobody else heard what I heard. Nobody else told me what I know. It was God who changed me. That's proof. God took me from not wanting Him at all to proclaiming Him as the only way. Paul says that's true heart change. God changed my life. God changed my life. In fact, if there ever was a person who somebody had said, there's no way that guy's going to get saved, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Right? He describes himself there in verses 13 and 14, saying, I wanted to destroy the church. I was so vehemently opposed to the Christian that I wanted to destroy them. So here's the Apostle Paul, a hater of the faith, Not just opposed to the faith, but aggressively hating it to the point that he was even violent against those who professed it. I want to destroy it. Remember last time we spent some time there on that word destroy. It just means to ravage, to to really take and destroy in complete ways, to turn everything into garbage. Why? Because he was a top-notch Pharisee. He was at the top of his class when it came to his religious life, when it came to his own efforts to make himself righteous before God. The gospel of spiritual freedom had no place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. 
So no person was going to convince Paul. His pride ran too deep. As he says to the Philippians, I put confidence, if if anybody wanted to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. I had all the confidence I could have in the flesh. There was no need for me to turn to Christ. I had everything. I was the quintessential Jewish believer. So from all human perspectives, Paul was unsavable. And so Paul's second proof is saying to others, listen, if God, through the gospel that I preach, can do what God has done with me, certainly the gospel will change your life. If the gospel can change a hater of God into a lover of God, if God can have mercy on a person like me, if it can change my life, then he can surely have mercy on you and change your life also. The gospel of legalism will not change you at all. The gospel of grace will change everything. But Paul is saying, in essence, salvation has nothing to do with that which comes from the human realm. Salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God, and his life proved that. Well, that kind of brings us up to speed where we already need to be for tonight. And Paul shows us two more convincing proofs of the truth of his gospel. The veracity of his gospel is proved in two other ways. <clears throat> Paul's the source of the gospel is proof that it's the saving gospel. Paul's life is proof that it's the saving gospel. But thirdly, Titus is proof of the true gospel. Titus, his companion, is proof of the true gospel. Notice what he says here in the first five verses. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did it in private to those who were of reputation for fear that it might be running, that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we didn't yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You see, Paul says, here's the whole purpose for why I did what I did. The whole purpose for doing what I did wasn't because I was doubting the gospel that I was preaching. It wasn't because there was some sense in me that I thought, well, maybe, maybe in some way there's a wrongness to what I'm saying. Paul certainly had no issue with what he was saying in any kind of way. He'd been out there for 14 years preaching. But Paul was concerned about the purity of the gospel being with them, remaining with them. Notice Paul gives the reason for why he is saying all this right there at the end of verse 5. There's the purpose. Here's the reason I'm saying all this to you Galatians. Here's the reason I'm telling you all of this stuff. Here's the reason I want you to understand the veracity of my gospel is the true gospel so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He's saying what needs What I need to say, I need to say it because the truth of the gospel is at stake. Truth of the gospel is at stake. In other words, the gospel that Paul is highlighting throughout this argument is not a truth of the gospel. It is the truth of the gospel. You notice that? Notice that he says, he didn't say so that a truth of the gospel might remain with you. He says, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. That is simply to say that if they do not get the truth as Jesus gave it to them, then they will not have what is needed to be saved. You know what Paul's saying? Don't tamper with the gospel. Don't tamper with the gospel. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, verse 32? You shall what? Know the truth... And the truth shall what? Set you free. 
You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In other words, there is only one Christ, there is only one truth, there is only one gospel. Christ is truth, John 14, 6. Christ is life, John 14, 6. He is the way, John 14, 6. There is no other gospel. Therefore, there is only one freedom worth fighting to preserve. Let me say that again. There is only one freedom worth fighting to preserve. It is the gospel. The Apostle Paul wasn't going to have himself deprived of the true gospel, nor was he going to have others deprived of the true gospel. So he went up to Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of the gospel in his mind. Not for the sake of the gospel that he needed to convince himself he was right. He knew what he was teaching was true. But to prove to the Judaizers that what he preached and to the Gentile or to the Galatians, what he preached, that what they heard and what they believed was the true gospel. That's why he went. And so Paul says in verse 1, after an interval, of 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. Taking Titus along. The book of Acts tells us, by the way, that there are at least four visits that Paul made to Jerusalem. So which one was this? Which one was this when Paul went up to Jerusalem at this point? That question, by the way, is debated. It's debated throughout theological circles of men better than me, but I will give you what I believe this to be. According to Acts, Paul made a quick trip to Jerusalem shortly after his conversion. After on the road to Damascus, he was blind for a few days, then he regained his sight, and he made a short trip to Jerusalem. Turn to Acts chapter 9 just to kind of get us oriented in all of this. All right, he went and saw Ananias after he was blinded as God had told him. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 9 says he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. And all those who were hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Didn't take long. Didn't take long for Paul in the beginning of his missionary journey to get hated. I mean, they loved this guy before because he was doing away with those who seemingly were undermining their religion, and now here they are wanting to get rid of him. But their plot became known to Saul. Verse 24, And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But the disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, see verse 26, He was trying to associate with the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, and he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And he's with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Here he is, not long once again, the next town. Paul can't go anywhere without wanting to be killed. 
When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So he's only there a short time. And I believe while there, he got acquainted then with Peter, as it says to us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, um, where it talks about where he talks about speaking with Cephas. So that was his first trip. On his second trip, he went in order to deliver the gift to the poor, to the poor saints in Jerusalem, because they were suffering under the famine at the time. If you turn over to Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, notice what happened after Peter preaches to the Gentiles, right? Peter goes and reports it to the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea. They heard, they heard that the Gentiles, in chapter 11, verse 1, the Gentiles had received the word of God, and Peter came up to Jerusalem, and those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so Peter began to tell them all that went on. And he relays the story to them. And he says in verse 17, If God therefore gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. So here is persecuted Christians who have been now squozen out by persecution in Jerusalem, just scattered out through all this region where there's Gentiles everywhere and there's Jewish synagogues in all these places. And they go and they start speaking about Jesus in all of these places. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, that's the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced again to encourage them with all resolute heart, remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a considerable number of them were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for who? For Saul. So now here is Barnabas, had gone down to Antioch upon the dispatching of those in Jerusalem to go and see what was going on. He gets word down there and he heads off to Tarsus where the Jerusalem had sent Paul, the leaders of Jerusalem had sent Paul before, and he found him and he brought him to Antioch. So now Barnabas takes Paul and they go back to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's interesting because we say, well, Paul's the one who went to Antioch, and and the first Christians there were because of Paul's testimony in Antioch. That's not true. That's not true. Other Jewish believers who were squozen out of Jerusalem under persecution went to Antioch and preached the gospel, and Paul came back to encourage those people. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. There's the second trip. And I believe Paul talks about that, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he talks about the Macedonian gift. When the Macedonian believers, which is this whole area, give liberally out of their even poverty to the Apostle Paul in order they might help these poor believers in Jerusalem. So that's the second trip that Paul went to Jerusalem. And in his third trip was, I believe, the one that Paul is referring to when he writes to the Galatian believers. It was on this trip that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And this encounter is recorded for us, I believe, in Acts chapter 15. 
Acts chapter 15. And it is this council meeting, this church council meeting, this official meeting in order that they might hear what the Apostle Paul is doing in earnest with the church leaders. And Paul presents before them Titus in proof that what he's preaching is true. And also he exposes the Judaizers' gospel to be false as he is in front of in the, with the Jerusalem council and that falseness of what the Judaizers had said is proven by how the leaders in the church respond to the Apostle Paul. The fourth visit to Jerusalem, of course, was his last visit because he was under arrest. He was under arrest and therefore then he was sent to Rome and you can read about that in Acts chapter 21 through 28. Go now back to Galatians chapter 2. Because Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Galatians, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So when Paul says after 14 year interval, I went up, I believe he is saying 14 years from the time I was converted. It's been 14 years from that day on the road to Damascus in my conversion. 14 years after I was miraculously saved, my life was changed, which was the last argument that he made in Galatian, or to the Galatians about the veracity of the gospel. Paul says, 14 years after that, remember who I was and how God saved me and I went about preaching? 14 years after that moment, after I was converted... Fourteen years had gone by, through which, Paul says, I was faithfully teaching what I knew to be true of Jesus Christ and what I knew about the gospel and faith in Him. After fourteen years, I went to Jerusalem and I took Barnabas, who was with me, and I and he could testify about my ministry, and I took Titus also. Why? Why Titus? Because Titus was a Gentile. Titus was a Gentile. He, remember, he's arguing against the Judaizers who have come in to spy out their liberty. Titus was a Gentile. Titus was the quintessential test case. Titus, Titus was the, the best test case for proof of the gospel, especially to the Gentiles in Galatia. Titus would have been the best test case. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. Listen, Galatian believers, listen especially you who are wavering on this precipice of potential unbelief concerning the gospel that I preached, that you're tempted to turn away from the truth. We went to the place where the Judaizers claim their authority comes from. We went to the council in Jerusalem. We went to the repudiated men of the church. The ones they would point to and say, That's not what they say. We went to them, and not even they tried to compel Titus, a Gentile, to get circumcised. If anybody would have said circumcision is a must for the gospel, it would have been them, and not even they tried to compel Titus to get circumcised. You see, taking Titus was a brilliant move by the Apostle Paul. Because Titus was a Greek. Titus was not a Jew. Many people knew Paul. Many people, whoever knew Paul, knew he was a Jew. They knew that he was potentially obstinate enough in his own fleshiness that he could personally disregard the law and say it was okay. But Titus was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. And if there was anything that would both expose and enrage the Judaizers, it would be an uncircumcised man in the holy city of Jerusalem. Paul knew that. Circumcision was everything to a legalistic Jew. Everything. It was their spiritual identity. 
In the past, in the Old Testament, in fact, you can read, if a Gentile wanted to worship God like the Jews, then they had to become like the Jew. They had to be circumcised. They were called proselyte Jews. That's what the law required. Paul comes along preaching the true gospel. He preaches a gospel that gives true freedom. Paul comes along preaching the good news that in Jesus Christ, the law has been fulfilled completely. That by faith in Him, by faith in Jesus Christ, a person becomes spiritually free. The requirements of the law, the requirements of the past are no longer needed. Titus is the perfect test case for that reality. Why? Because he's a man who believed upon Jesus Christ. He's a man who, who by faith trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And none, notice, none of the reputed leaders, you notice he says that, men of reputation, those who are of high reputation, he calls them. Not even Titus, verse 3, was compelled to be circumcised. Not even he was compelled. We went to the men of reputation. He calls them in verse 6, reputed leaders. Reputed leaders. None of them required Titus to be circumcised. I mean, these are the pillars of the church. You would think that if the gospel of the Judaizers was the saving gospel, you would think Galatians... If the Judaizers appealed to the reputed leaders of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and the reputed leaders at the time were the apostles of Jesus Christ, the real apostles, that's what Acts 15 shows us, that they were the apostles. That's who they went to. If they didn't require it of Titus, then it must not be necessary for salvation. That's Paul's point. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 3. Not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. You know what he's saying? Not even the reputed leaders of the church who you are appealing to and having us go to and wanting us to go to, and by God's revelation we are going there, required it of Titus. You see, the true gospel is not salvation by faith in Jesus Christ plus something else. That's what Paul's saying. The true gospel is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, every true Christian is saved exactly the same way. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. doesn't matter which side of the cross you are on, whether you're Old Testament saint or New Testament person, we're all looking to the cross. Titus was the perfect example of that. He couldn't be more of a different person than the apostles of Jesus Christ. And yet here he is, a man just like them. He is a man saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says to the Galatian believers, listen, I'll prove the gospel to you. I'll prove it's the gospel I preach to you is true. How? By showing you what the source is, that it's God himself is the source of the gospel. I'll prove to you the truth of the gospel by showing you my own life. Only the gospel could have changed me. I'll show you the proof of the gospel. I'll show you the veracity of the gospel I preach by showing you Titus. Not even the apostles in Jerusalem required him to follow the ceremonial law. And then he says, then he gives a fourth proof. Fourth proof. The agreement from the Jerusalem leaders with my gospel is proof. The agreement with my, with my gospel from the Jerusalem leaders is proof. Notice verse 7 through 10, but on the contrary, right? They didn't, they didn't contribute anything to me, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, circ, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked in Peter as in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. 
And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, you understand that? The Jerusalem leaders saw the grace of God in my life and my commissioning of what God was doing with me in my apostleship to the Gentiles. They recognized the grace that he had given to me. And so James and Cephas and John, who were the reputed pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised or to the circumcised. They only asked us to do one thing. They didn't ask us to change the gospel. They didn't ask us to change our preaching. They didn't ask us to edit anything that we were saying to the Gentiles. They didn't add anything to us. All they said to us is just remember the poor, the very thing we were already eager to do. And in fact, we already showed them we were eager to do that. We came with gifts for the poor previously. Not only was Titus' conversion contradict, uh, not contradicted by the leaders, not only was Paul be, or Titus being a Greek added uh, or forced to do what any other Gentile would have done in the past, but neither was Paul's commission to preach doubted. Now, I don't want us to think that Paul is disparaging the other apostles here. Right, Because he says to them, from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. But to those who are of reputation, verse 6, they contributed nothing to me. He's not, he's not, he's not beating them up. He's, he's not doubting who they are. He's not disparaging them. He's simply saying it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who they are in in the greatest scheme of things. What matters is what God says. Who they are, it really doesn't matter. Paul says, I wasn't taught this by men, so it doesn't matter. God's the one who taught me this. So who they are, it really doesn't matter. And God was the one who commissioned me to preach. He's the one who gave the gospel to me. So whether they agree or not is not my concern. Whether they agree with what I'm saying or not, that's not why I'm going up in order that I might find some kind of agreement with me. I'd love for them and for us to be unified in agreement. Why? Because I have a concern, and that is that the church at large will be hurt and hindered if we aren't in agreement. Right? Paul says, uh, uh, my biggest concern is that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Verse 5. Listen, if there's not agreement amongst the evangelical leaders within the church about the gospel, the church is hurt. So Paul says, I went to them, not because I was doubting the gospel, not because even really I thought they were doubting the gospel, but I didn't want the church to be hurt. And I wanted to expose the lie of the Judaizers. And their lie was exposed when the apostles agreed with what God had called me to do. And with what they heard, I was teaching. If I go back to Acts chapter 15, just to kind of solidify this in our minds. Paul shares the whole story there, talking about all that had gone on. He says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, and the brethren determined, that is the church, those who they were speaking to, those who were in the churches in the area of Galatia, determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. There's the revelation that Paul had. Paul said, I went up because of a revelation. There it is. God used others to compel him. He said, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church. And the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And certain ones of the sect of the, the, sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. 
After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to the brethren, said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember that? That happened in Acts chapter 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us, and He made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. So all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So James stands up after they had stopped speaking. James answers and says, Brethren, listen to me. This is Jesus' half-brother. Listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from above. Therefore, It's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? In order to not offend, right? That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. Listen, if something offends your brother, don't do it. It's not in order to gain approval from God. It's it's so that the door of the gospel is opened. You don't want to do something that might offend somebody. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preached him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath, you see? Paul says, look, just tell them don't 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 eat things contaminated from idols, stay away from fornication, from things strangled and from blood. Why? Because there's people in every city that still preach the law of Moses as the way. And they'd be offended by that, and the door would be closed. So it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Jesus called Judas called Barsabbath and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter to them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disrupted you with their words, unsettling your souls. I love that. Right there in writing now, they're saying to the Judaizers, these are people we didn't send to you, they shouldn't be speaking to you, and all they're doing is upsetting your souls. What they're telling you is not true. It seemed good to us, having become one of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their very lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we send Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood, from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Pretty and pretty simple letter. What Paul said to us and what we saw in Titus and 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 the testimony of Barnabas and, and all these things shows us one thing that what Paul is preaching is exactly what Paul needs to preach. The Judaizers are wrong. God has called Paul. Listen to Paul. That's in essence what the letter is saying. When they sent him away. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. I love that. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. So they went back to Jerusalem. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. We kind of get the end of the story in Galatians, don't we? 
we kind of get the reception that happened after this after the letters all went we know what took place the Jerusalem council they didn't try to amend anything they didn't try to edit paul they didn't try to change or alter the gospel that paul shared they just simply agreed with it they knew what paul did they knew that it's impossible to brighten the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can't do that. The gospel says that through the finished work of Christ, through his death and resurrection, that he has done how much? Everything that needs to be done for spiritual freedom. You see, if we add anything to the free and gracious gospel, not only does it change the gospel, it changes good news to very bad news what it does. So the apostle simply said, keep doing what you're doing. Go and do what you're doing with the Gentiles and we'll keep preaching to the Jews. Just remember the poor. Just remember the poor. But Paul says, all they asked of us is that we remember the poor. He said, that's the very thing that I also was eager to do. Paul was right. The apostles in Jerusalem got it right. Beloved, we have to get it right. We have to get it right. Same kind of battle that Paul was struggling with is the same kind of battle that rages oftentimes in evangelical churches across this globe. Some try to add to the gospel. And the battle will not end until Christ returns to bring the reality of our free eternity to fruition. It's just not going to end. We need to fight for freedom. We need to fight for freedom. But the only freedom that we need to fight for is the true gospel. That's the only freedom of which the true gospel speaks and provides. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the bondage. Through the spiritual freedom found only through faith in Jesus Christ. There's another Martin Luther in our history. Today's the day that we celebrate what he began, the Reformation, when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. He cried out for freedom as well. Many of you may not know that. Here's what he said, quote, The issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God who by the will and command of the Father, became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for He has not lived up to His promises and therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. Why? Because by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life, unquote. So we fight. We fight for freedom, the freedom found in the gospel. We fight so that the truth of the gospel might remain with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, for this really lesson in history in some ways, and yet confirmation to us that what you have given to us in your word, what the Apostle Paul preached, what the Apostles preached, what we know to be right is, in fact, the true gospel. You are the source. We see the veracity of it and the change even in our own lives and we know that what we preach is true if we preach your gospel. 
May we never alter it. May we never adjust it in any kind of way that others might know the freedom that we know in Christ. And we thank you for that until eternity and throughout eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.